All right, off we go. Good morning. Hey, let's open our Bibles this morning to uh, Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 22. Now, I hate to hit you with a chart right in the very beginning, but I'm just going to leave this up here for a few minutes. As we've been going through uh, this Passion Week, and the Passion Week is really described as really the last week of Jesus' life on the earth before he was, uh, before his resurrection and certainly before his ascension. And um, so they call this the Passion Week, these last seven, eight days roughly. And um, uh, this chart that I made on the back uh, on the screen here is uh, accurate to the best of my ability and uh, spent quite a bit of time on it. Not that that matters, but uh, I believe this is accurate. And I've checked with a lot of different sources and everything and really looked at it. Uh, but anyway, I put this up here so that we can kind of see as we go through this Passion Week. Because we're in chapter 22 now, but as we get further into uh, chapter 28 to the end of Matthew's Gospel, it covers quite a bit, doesn't it? It covers his, uh, his, um, the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, the upper room actually before that, uh, the Last Supper we call it. Um, the Garden of Gethsemane uh, events and Jesus' false arrest and then certainly the crucifixion and then the resurrection uh, which are the most significant parts of the Bible. And so this morning we're going to be continuing looking at events that occurred on the Wednesday of Passion Week which is April 1st back in 33 AD as you can see and that little red arrow is telling you where we're at and what the calendar was at that time, and what uh, was going on that day. And last week we were looking at the lessons of the, the withered fig tree, uh, and, um, and now we're looking at the events that are recorded in this area that we're at. In the, If you could bring that down just a little bit, uh, David, I can hear this uh, artifact up here in the ceiling. So, <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. And so... Um, Let's take a look at this. Let's open our Bibles and, and read from just the first, uh, let's just go down to the first 14 verses. If we can get down through the first, if we can get down through verse 22, it will, it's very possible. So, can you bring it down a little bit more? It's, uh, so, let's read it. So, and Jesus... Answered and spoke to them again by parables, and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, and he sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come again. Or they were not willing to come. And again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed, and all the things that are ready come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, and one, of his own, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies and destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. But those who are invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways, and they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. And so he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now the parable recorded here obviously is referring to a king who had a son who was getting married, and they're going to have a big feast. The king sent his servants, as we just read, to call those to, uh, who were invited to the wedding, but they refused. And on top of all this, they killed those who came to uh, invite them. 
And the marriage feast that is mentioned here is, in reality, coming yet in the future. After the second coming of Christ to the earth, and after the resurrection of the Old, uh, Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints, which we have looked at when we were in the book of Revelation, this, uh, these different waves of the resurrection that we talked about. But this feast that's being referred to here will be for all of redeemed in Jesus Christ. Not only the Jews, but the, 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 the church as well, made up of Jew and Gentile, they will all converge on this wonderful event, yet future to us, in what we know as the millennium or the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 11, is the chapter we know that shows us and prophesies of when Jesus will physically return to the earth in his second coming. And so the scene is in heaven, and immediately, and it's immediately before Christ comes back. So I'd like to show you just Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10, the leading up to Christ coming physically to the earth, with all of you, by the way, and you're going to look fabulous. You're going to be coming back on, on noble steeds, and we're, we're all coming back on white horses, the Bible tells us. You can mock that if you want, but I'm already getting my saddles and my spur ready, my spurs ready, because I'm going to come back with him. So uh, that's what the Lord says. He's coming back on a white horse, so it would make sense that we would come back with him, uh, the church, redeemed. But notice, and uh, let me just read to you Revelation 19, verses 6 through 10, because this will kind of set the stage of where this marriage feast that Jesus is talking about, that is yet future to us, where it fits in, in the timeline of end time events. So Revelation 19, verse 16, it says, And I heard, as it were, John says, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia. For the Lord God omnipotent reigns. And I'd say hallelujah to that too. Looking forward to that day. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper or marriage feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, These things are the sayings of the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. Notice John just being so overwhelmed by this uh, angelic being in front of him that he, he doesn't know what to do. And honestly, I don't think we would either because we've never experienced anything like that. If an angel of God visits you like this, you're, you're going to fall flat on your face. You're not going to have this you know, haughty idea of, well, I'm just like you, brother. No, it's going to be like uh, you're going to be a Hoover vacuum cleaner, right? Your face is going to be on the carpet. And he said to me, these are the uh, true And I fell at his feet, excuse me, to worship him, but he said to me, See that you do it not, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. There's a great uh, command. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so, verse 10, or verse 11, excuse me, following is the verse of Jesus' return. And so, we know that this wedding feast is going to be right after Jesus comes physically to the earth in his second coming. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, we're not going to go there, but I would encourage you to read a verse, and there's a lot to this, but I don't want us to get too bogged down in this right now, but in Daniel 12, verse 11, it records that after the second coming of Christ, there will be about a 75-day 75, a 75 interval, actually, between when, uh, when Jesus comes to the earth before he is inaugurated uh, in the millennial kingdom. So there's about 75 days of, uh, of this interval where the Lord, it records for us in Matthew and other places, we'll get to it, things are going to be happening there. God is going to be setting up his kingdom in that time. Some events are going to happen there. And one of those events we're looking at to, uh, this morning, and Jesus, just remember, is, is really thinking, when he's thinking of the the, the wedding feast or the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's where that marriage supper occurs, is in the millennial reign in the beginning, somewhere in that 75-day interval that Daniel tells about us in Daniel 12, verses 11 and 12. And so um, 
In fact, I just want to discuss a couple of things here really quick just so you can understand this. This is kind of like a, an end time calendar that I put together. But you'll notice that right here is when Jesus was resurrected. And this church age has been going on since the day of Pentecost up until the church is removed in the rapture. And when the rapture occurs, the Bible says there is a, a great tribulation period, a seven-year period where God is going to be pouring out his wrath on a world that has rejected his son. But terminating the end of that destruction and God's judgment will be the second coming of Christ. And then there'll be this 75-day interval that Daniel 12, uh, 11 and 12 tells us. And it's within this 75-day period we believe that the marriage supper of the Lamb is going to occur as well as preceding that, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, those who have died in faith, uh, be, before Christ. Um, they will be resurrected at that time as well as this feast where the Jews, Gentiles, the church will be having this marriage supper of the Lamb and then following that of course uh, is the millennial reign, the thousand year reign of Christ and then the great white throne judgment and then, hallelujah, eternity. <laughs> new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem that the Bible's been telling us about that we looked at when we were in the book of Revelation. But I bring this up to you just so you can kind of see where uh, the, th the things that I'm going to be talking about, where that's occurring. And so it's in that 75-day uh, interval where these things will be happening. So, and I just want to mention one thing before we go any further, that although the church will also be present, of course, at this marriage supper of the Lamb, the purpose, the purpose of this parable is the setting aside of Israel. We have to remember that. It's about the setting aside of Israel because back in Matthew, um, back in Matthew twelve, I, I, believe, I believe it was verse thirty-one. The, the religious leaders had wholesale rejected Jesus, basically saying that the things that he was doing, he was doing by the power of Satan. And it was really from that moment and going forward, and as we looked at last week, Jesus is giving them these parables, and he's really taking them to task because he's standing before them, and he's saying these, giving these parables, and this is the third one, and he's really bringing them to um, accountability and basically telling them where they have failed. They have failed as a nation. They failed as, as religious leaders and what God had called them to do. They completely failed. And if any one of those men, even then, were to bow their knee, I know that the Lord would receive them. But God knew their heart, and he knew that they would ultimately, their hearts became so hardened. And you know, that's a, a really sad thing uh, about a human being. And have you ever been that angry before? And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would say, yes, I have been that angry. I've been so angry that I just was not rational. I wasn't rational. I wasn't even thinking. All I was thinking about is my pound of flesh that I wanted. And I was thinking about, I'm just going to hold on to this anger. And these religious leaders were at that place. Their hearts had grown so hard, just like Pharaoh. His heart had gotten so hard, God gave him over to that hardened heart. And there was no rescuing him after that. And that's a mystery. This whole idea of a hardened heart is a mystery. And I pray that none of you hold on to a hardened heart for long. Because you don't know how long you'll hold on to that hardened heart to where it'll just be solidified. Now, if you're a believer, you don't have to worry about that. Even as believers, we get angry and frustrated, and I get that. But I'm talking about an unbeliever who has continued digging in their heels, rejecting Christ, and they, they continue to do so. And there's a point where God will give them what they want. Listen, heaven is not going to be populated with people who don't want to be there. It's going to be populated with people who are worshipers. Of Christ. It's not going to be inhabited by people going, man, I really wish we could get this over with. I want to go back to the earth. Really? You want to come back to this? <laughs> no offense. There should be applause, or not applause, but smiles on your faces. I don't want to come back to this. Raise your hand if you want to come back to this when you're in heaven. Nah, I don't think so. But this parable, and, and it becomes obvious as we read it, is the setting aside of Israel for a season. Because remember this, church. God is not done with Israel. I don't care who you listen to. If they tell you that somehow the church has 
um, taken the promises that God has made to Israel and made it their own, that is not true. It's not true at all. God has given the Israelites, the, the Jews, a specific uh, destiny, and he's given the church a destiny, and they're both going to the same place in, in the millennial reign and on, but they're, God has made promise. They're two distinct bodies. And God has made promises to each, and he will be faithful to accomplish the promises that he's made to the Jews and also to the church. So don't ever confuse the two. Because when you do, your eschatology is going to get all weird, trust me, because you're going to be thinking that, well, these promises mean the church and these promises are to the Jews. You've got to keep that straight. And, and hopefully as we go along in the Bible, make those clear as we go. But let's look at verse 1 now. It says, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. Now, them, he's referring to, are the chief priests and the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the scribes. So these folks are the them that is spoken of here. So Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables. And the word parable, you remember when we were in Matthew chapter 13, we looked at what some have called the kingdom parables, and we looked at what a parable is. It is a contraction of two Greek words, para, which means alongside of, and balo, to mean uh, to throw. So to throw alongside, the idea is to compare two things side by side, comparing or juxtaposing things that are known against things that are unknown. And we learned this back in Matthew 13. And parables, remember, were meant to illustrate, sometimes to reveal, and other times to conceal. So this now is the third parable that Jesus gave to the religious leaders. Well, you may be asking, well, what were the first two? Well, just turn in your Bible, just the, page, the chapter before. You'll notice that in uh, Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through um, uh, 32. It was the parable of the two sons. And if you remember that parable last week, Jesus, again, was upbraiding the religious leaders for their lack of faith and their lack of belief in him. And then the second parable that he gave to these, uh, these men, these religious leaders specifically, was the one that we looked at last week, too. It was the parable of the wicked vine dressers recorded for us in verses 33 through 44. So in all three of these parables, Jesus... He's taking them to task. And they needed to be taken to task. They were the religious, they were supposed to be the ones that were leading people to Christ rather than taking them away from them. They were blind guides, Jesus says. They were supposed to be leading people to Christ, to the Messiah. He was their Messiah that had been prophesied for hundreds and even a few thousand years prior, the Messiah of Israel, God in the flesh. He was prophesied for a long time, and they should have known it. Jesus held them responsible for that. You guys should have known it. But instead of leading people to Christ, they're playing their own games, getting rich off the people, and their hearts growing even harder toward the gospel message and toward Jesus, so much so that there came a point where they, were, they had crossed the Rubicon, and there was no going back for them. They were hook, line, and sinker bent on destroying Christ. And they succeeded. Or at least they thought. Because Friday's good, but Sunday's coming. (laughs) (laughs) Friday was good, but Sunday came and he rose from the grave, defeating death and hell. And all their plots and all their schemes just evaporated like the morning dew. Victorious. That's the king you serve. Aren't you glad, church? Me too. Me too. But all three of these parables, including the one here in chapter 22, what what do they do? They expose who the religious leaders are, and it all began back in chapter 21, verse 23. And you remember it was there last week when they began to question Jesus' authority. Who gives you the right to come in and cleanse this temple? Who gives you the right to do these things? And that's where Jesus challenged, challenged them, and he gave them a question. But instead of these parables bringing conviction on their hearts, resulting in salvation of their souls, their heart became harder and harder, confirming and solidifying their impending condemnation. 
And in this parable and the two preceding it that we just looked at, Jesus made no illusions on whom he was speaking about. He didn't conceal it much either. In the parable of the two sons, remember, uh, Jesus says plainly to the religious leaders, beginning in verse 31, he says, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said to him, the first. And you remember that parable that we looked at. And then Jesus answered them and says, assuredly, I say to you. So he gives them this parable, but then he sticks the finger right in their nose, right in their face. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots, they believed in him. And when you saw it, when you saw that they were giving their heart to these people that you considered untouchable and unclean, and you wouldn't have anything to do with them, when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. And then after the parable, after the parable of the wicked vine dressers in verse 33 through 44, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they began to understand that he was speaking all of these parables and it was all about them and their hardness of heart and their rejection. It tells us in Matthew 21, verse 43, Jesus said to them, the same group of people, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Well, duh. Of course he was. He was speaking directly to them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, because they feared the multitudes, and what a horrible thing to fear man over God. Here he is standing right in front of them. And they feared the people. But when they sought to lay hands on them, they feared the multitudes because they took him as a prophet. So these parables were solidifying what Jesus had already said prior concerning the Jews. And what did he say prior concerning the Jews? Matthew 18, or excuse me, Matthew chapter 8, verse 11 tells us. Jesus said to them, And I say unto you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven, what is he referring to? The millennial reign, right? That's what he's talking about. When you think of kingdom of heaven, think of at least the, 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 the thousand-year reign of Christ. And it extends beyond into the eternity, but, but that's where uh, he's speaking of. That many will come from the east and the west, and they'll sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, they were dead a long, long time ago. Does that mean they're going to be resurrected in the millennium? Yeah, that's what it means. The Old Testament saints who believed. They will be there. We will see them. But the sons of the kingdom, these are the men who should have known Christ. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in this parable that we're going to be looking at now, referring to the wedding feast, verses 2 through 14, Jesus is showing how God the Father, he had offered this kingdom of heaven to those who might believe in him. But unfortunately, we know the religious leaders and the nation of Israel had already made their decision. So verse 2, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a marriage for his son. So as we read this parable, Jesus will be drawing a parallel between this event of the king and his son and the reality of what was happening between Jesus and the religious leaders and the nation. Again, they had rejected Christ and they would be complicit in the death of, not only, of other martyrs like Stephen and other disciples. The religious leaders would be complicit in their deaths. But before we go any further, we have to define who these characters are. So, The king is speaking here of God the Father, and I think as you read it, you'll understand that very clearly. The king's son is, of course, speaking of Jesus. His servants that are referred here in in this parable are referring to the king's servants. And they would be the prophets of the Old Testament. It would also include John the Baptist and others sharing the good news of the kingdom. That would include the apostles. And then those who were invited were initially the Jewish people who spurned his invitation to the kingdom of heaven. So these are the players. And so verse 3, and he sent out his servant, servant, excuse me, to call those who were invited to the wedding. Don't you like getting invited to a wedding? 
You get to see the bride and the groom and you get to celebrate with them at one of the most joyous occasions on the planet. There's very few events in the world where there's such joy as at a wedding. When you see two people coming together, especially Christians. A Christian marriage is the most glorious wedding procession I've ever seen. He called those who were invited to the wedding. Those who were invited, the Jews. And they were not willing to come. And this is kind of interesting because it reminds me of a verse in John's Gospel. In the very first chapter of John's Gospel, it says in verse 11 that he came, Jesus, the Word of God who became flesh, he came to his own. Because Jesus was born into the Jewish race. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So verse 4, back in our text here, it says, Again, he sent out other servants. The first wave of servants, they were ignored. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell me who, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. And the thing we have to remember here is that a traditional Jewish wedding feast consisted of a seven-day celebration after the couple had been married. That's kind of fun, isn't it? In America, we have one day And it's one day because the father of the bride can't afford everything. If you let that go on for seven days, you'd have to be pretty wealthy. But back in these days, this is what they would do. A seven-day feast they would have for all of their guests, rejoicing with the newlyweds. And we believe, based on Daniel chapter 12 that I spoke to earlier, verses 11 and 12, and Revelation 19 that we just looked at, and the words of Jesus that all of redeemed mankind will enjoy this marriage supper of the Lamb at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Verse 5, it says, But they made light of it when these other uh, ambassadors came, these other invitations, and went their ways, one to his farm, another to his business. And, and this is typical what people do. And I did this for many years. Many times I had the gospel shared with me, but I just kind of shrugged it off and I didn't really care. And uh, perhaps you were that way too. I had people sharing with me over the years and I just kind of pushed them away. Yeah, whatever, Jesus freak, you know. You fundamental Bible thumper. You know, I, I call them all kinds of names, laugh at them. Until I became one of them. I'm a Jesus freak. I love it. I am a Jesus freak, and so should you. <laughs> After all that he's done for me, I'm going to be a freak for him. I don't care what people think. Yes, I'm, I may, it may appear that I've lost a few marbles, but actually I've got them all together. It's the people who have less marbles, those are the ones you have to worry about. Right? <laughs> And I'm only kidding, of course. But the idea here is that I am just so thankful for God's grace and his patience with me and how long I I, I dragged my feet and how long he, the overtures that he made to me and to you. And and mystery of mysteries, right? One day I receive it, everything, every time before that I rejected it. I don't know how that happens. That's between the Holy Spirit and, I, don't, I can't figure that out. It's a mystery. And I think it's good that it's a mystery because we can't pin it down. We can't model it. We, we, can't, we can't make it happen. The salvation of a soul happens for reasons that only God knows. And it frustrates us because we want it to happen on our timetable. Lord, I've been sharing with this person for weeks and now it's the time. It's Friday night. Sunday's coming. They got to give their heart now because they got to come to church on Sunday. You know, you get frustrated with God. God's like, um, they're going to come ready precisely when I want them to. I know their heart. And I'm not worried about the time. So just calm your horses. That's a good message for us. Calm your horses. I'm in control. <laughs> You're not. I'm not. He's in control. Good place, right, to be submitted to Christ. 
Verse 6, and it says, And the rest, they seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and even killed some of them. And we see that this did happen, uh, how the Jews treated John the Baptist. They treated him horribly. Uh, Ultimately, it would be Herod who would behead him, but the Jews could care less about John. They had rejected him. They had rejected uh, John's message about Jesus. They had rejected his message about the kingdom of heaven. They didn't want anything to do with John. They were glad that he was dead. He was drawing too much attention to Jesus. God forbid. It's all about Jesus. Right? They treated also the disciples before and after Jesus' resurrection. They treated them horribly. Some were treated badly. Some were even martyred. But verse 7, but when the king heard about it, obviously he was furious and he sent out his armies and he destroyed those murderers and burned up their city. And this literally happened, folks. It literally happened in 70 AD. You know this well if you've been here for any length of time. In 70 AD when Titus Vespasian and the Roman armies, the legions, they seized Jerusalem. They sieged it and ultimately burned it and they dragged the temple off the temple and the supporting structures off the edge of the temple mount into the valley below. You saw a picture a couple weeks ago of me standing on those rocks. They're there today. They're still there. They haven't moved in 2,000 years. As a memorial, they leave them there. But Jesus will be prophesying of this in, in the next chapter. And let me just give you a foreshadowing of that. Remember, he told them the king would allow this army, the Roman army in 70 AD to destroy the temple, to just scrape it. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this in verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I would wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See? (laughs) Your house is left to you desolate. For I say unto you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then it says that Jesus went out and departed from the temple and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple and how beautiful Herod had really expanded the temple complex. And Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. They're all going to go. So Jesus here in this parable is speaking of that time. Now he was speaking this in 33 AD and that event wouldn't occur for 37 more years in 70 AD. So they had 37 years to get their act together and they didn't. Isn't that true of man as well? Left to our own devices, we don't do very well. But then, verse 8, then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, they were invited, again, only a small remnant received Christ and will actually be at that wedding supper of the Lamb in their resurrected bodies. How glorious is that? That's even cooler, actually, to show up at a wedding a wedding feast, and have a resurrected body, a new body. You know, you don't have that bum knee. You don't have that funny liver. You don't have that heart that needs to be changed out, you know. You're going to be there, and you're going to look golden. You're going to look fabulous. You're going to look fabulous. No sickness. A body outfitted for eternity. I'm looking forward to that. No more coronavirus. No more vaccines. No more flu. So the king said, therefore, go into the highways. I made everything ready. They weren't willing. They didn't come. They killed who I sent to them. Now, go into the highways. And as many as you find, invite to this wedding. So these other people that are spoken spoken of in verses 8 and 9, who are invited now, may refer... Okay, may refer to the Jews in the end times that will go through, many of them, the Great Tribulation, or it could even be broader and include the Gentiles who will come to faith uh, uh, through that time period of the, of the Great Tribulation going into the um, millennial reign or the thousand years uh, of Christ. So it could be referring to them as well. Uh, so those servants, verse 10 
went out into the highways. They gathered together all whom they found, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. Now, it was customary in those days for the host of the wedding to provide guests with a garment that they would wear. They were part of the the group, and and they all looked similar. They all looked the same, and and it was a garment that the host would provide. But here in this parable, the wedding garment was something provided by the king, and those who had a wedding garment were true believers, and they were welcomed into the kingdom. Do you see that? If you're in this wedding party, you're accepted. If you come without a wedding garment, you are not accepted. And so the Lord is saying, well, are you in Christ or are you not? In in a sense, that's what we are looking at. But the implication here in the original language is not that the man forgot a wedding garment, but that he was given one, but he refused the wedding garment. He didn't want to have anything to do with what the host, uh, the the, the king wanted. He refused the wedding garment. That's what in the original language, that's the idea behind this. He willingly denied the garment that the host gave to him. So this man, without a wedding garment, he may represent those who are believers in name only. He may have looked like a believer. He may have sounded like a believer. He may even hung out with believers, but ultimately he was not a believer. He wasn't covered properly with the attire of the king. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, Isaiah, writing 700 years before Christ, he says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me, notice, with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Do you know that as a believer that that's what you are clothed in? When you become a believer, the Lord puts his robe of righteousness on you. Not your righteousness, because the Bible says, Isaiah actually says in a different place, that our righteousness is like filthy rags, literally menstrual cloths. Sorry to be so graphic, but that's literally what it means. Filthy rags. My righteousness is filthy rags. Ah, but his righteousness, whole different story. The righteousness of Christ covering you. I like that too. Doesn't the blood of Christ cover you and forgive you of all of your sin? Isn't that awesome? Raise your hand if that's a good idea, if that's a good thing. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, glad that everybody raised their hand except for you. No, just kidding. (laughs) Just having fun here. So notice, the man was without a wedding garment. He came in his own righteousness and not clothed with what the king, the host, had provided for him. The king's righteousness, the very righteousness of Christ. And as a result, that man would be cast into outer darkness or what you and I would call hell. Yes, hell, that's a real place. In the church today in America, especially in the big uh, fancy you know, mega churches, they don't talk about this anymore. Uh, let's not talk about hell. Let's just tell them what they, let's make them feel good so they come back next week. Hey, listen, if I, if I only told you the things that I know made you feel good, I would be derelict and I should be removed. Because the Bible says these things, and we teach the whole counsel of God. I'm not going to remove anything, take something away because I think it might hurt your feelings, or mine, because I have to be the first partaker of this, right? I read it, I study it, and the Lord is hitting me with all this stuff, going, well, where are you at, Rob? I'm like, oh, I don't know, Lord. But yes, outer darkness. Hell is a real place. Heaven's a real place, too. You're going to go to one of those two places. And based on the decision that you make of Christ determines where your destiny is. Eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. In outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's not a place where your friends go and party. There's no parties in hell. They're not having a great, down, great time down there with their Bud Light. No. They're not. In Romans 10, verse 2, it says, For Paul speaking here uh, concerning the Jewish people, he said, For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to, to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of. Uh, 
God's righteousness, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. And that's exactly what we see here in this parable. That's exactly the reason Jesus is giving this. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, it says, But what things were gained to me, Paul says to the Philippians, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, notice, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. See, that's what you and I signed up for. I didn't sign up for my own righteousness, somehow my own righteousness getting me to heaven. No, I says, uh, <laughs> toss this old thing away. I'll take your righteousness. Thank you very much. And see, that's the exchange you make when you become a believer in Christ. So verse 12, so he said to them, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And notice he was speechless. Didn't have anything to say. He's probably pretty fearful, actually. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot. This sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? It sounds harsh. And it is, for that man. Because he rejected what the king gave him. He rejected the wedding garment the very righteousness of Christ. And Jesus is saying this to the religious leaders. You have rejected me, he says. And there's no hope for you unless you turn. But Jesus, don't you love this about him? He can look straight through you. You can't hide anything from him. He looks straight through you. I I, I think I can hide things from people And maybe even I uh, deceive myself in thinking, well, I can keep this from God, but there's no keeping anything from God. He sees you like he's looking through transparency. He knows exactly the motivations of your heart, why you're doing what you're doing, why you're doing it. He knows when you're going to finally be fed up with it. He also knows who's going to bail you out of jail if you get caught. He knows all these things. How did you come in here without a garment? And the king says, bind him hand and foot and take him away. And notice what Jesus says, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This phrase that Jesus uses, and he uses it a lot in the Gospels, weeping and gnashing of teeth refers to hell or the lake of fire that we know is spoken of in the Bible. Jesus uses the word Gehenna to describe this final eternal judgment for unbelievers. Uh, a good place to look, and, and let me just read it to you, is in Matthew 10, verse 28. Jesus here, speaking to the 12 disciples, he says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. The word is Gehenna in the Greek, literally. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus speaking, he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. He says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, not the externals, oh, I haven't touched her, but your heart and your mind have already touched her many times. Or it could be women for men, it doesn't really matter. But it's all about the heart. He says, but I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's always about the heart. And if your right hand or right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell, meaning Gehenna, because that is the ultimate state the ultimate state. Now, Gehenna, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, is where this word comes from, is actually a place in Jerusalem during the time of the kings. And um, it's a place where they would burn their trash. It would also be a place where they would burn dead animals. And it was uh, located just south of Zion because here is the Temple Mount, which in David's time didn't have a temple on it yet. But David's palace was right over here on this, and this was called Zion. But right down here in the lower corner uh, on the, uh, it would be the uh, south 
of, of, of Zion down here. There's actually a highway here now. And it's very, the soil there is very dark. Even today, you go by there and you look around and it's a very rich soil because there's been a lot of refuse, a lot of death. This is where the old kings of Judah, they used to burn their children and sacrifice them to Molech. Remember that image of molten metal that they would heat up and then place their babies on it and they would incinerate? And they did this to worship their false god. Yes, postpartum abortion. They weren't fancy like us. We can do it in the womb. But they did it afterwards. But this is the place. When Jesus is speaking of Gehenna, he's thinking, because this place was constantly on fire, smoldering and burning from the refuse. And, and, and in the times of the, ju- or the, the kings of Judah, they used to burn their, their children to Molech in this place. And so Jesus named this final place, this final abode of the wicked dead, this final eternal place of judgment for unbelievers. He called it Gehenna. And also, it is what is referred to at the great white throne judgment. I know you have... I've read this many times, but I'm going to read it to you again. This is what Jesus is speaking about when he says weeping and gnashing of teeth, this eternal state. It's recorded for us in Revelation. And remember, this great white throne judgment that's spoken here that I'm reading to you is not for believers. Okay, If you're a believer, you're not going to be here. But if you're an unbeliever and you take your last breath, someday you're going to be here. It says, John, speaking in Revelation 20, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, meaning the wicked dead, small and great, standing before God. And in order to do that, they had to be resurrected. They were resurrected, given new bodies to withstand the fires of hell, which will rage forever and ever. And it says, And I saw the dead, the wicked dead again, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And notice, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So that means that everything as an unbeliever that I've ever done, God knows about. You can't hide it from him. He knows everything. Those events are recorded. So when you stand, if you reject Christ to the very end, you're going to stand before him and you're going to say, I don't deserve to be here. It's not fair. Uh, Bring out the books. (laughs) Do you remember on this date when you said this? Oh, yeah, I do. Do you remember this day when you did this? Oh, do you remember this day? (laughs) But he's going through and there'll be no hope. It'll be the sentence. There'll be no hope for anybody at the great white throne. They've already been, they've already rejected Christ and had been in Hades until this time where he brings up death and Hades before the white throne judgment. They will be resurrected, given new bodies, and then sentenced to the lake of fire called Gehenna. And it says, And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which are written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. And death and Hades, notice, Hades, where people go now if they die and they're unbelievers, they go to Hades. This was delivered up. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. This is the place Jesus is referring to when he talks about this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth where the worm dies not and the flame doesn't quench. That's what he's speaking of. And see, that's sobering, and it ought to be. See, we have a decision, right? We have a decision to make. Jesus finally ends this area right here, and we're going to stop here after verse 14. It says, For many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. You see, today the Lord is still calling people to come to repentance and faith. And all of us are here today, I hope and believe you're here because you've either done that or you're considering it. And praise the Lord if you're here and you haven't made that decision. Would to God that the whole entire church here were filled with people who never heard about Jesus Christ. Because the message is wonderful. It, it, it doesn't appeal to my flesh because I don't want to think about where I could go. 
Well, listen, you don't have to go there. These religious leaders, that's where they were going to go. Tax collectors and harlots were going to get there before these guys because they thought they were okay, but they were far from the kingdom of God. But what about you? But you have to come to him on his terms. And you can't expect to enter in without a wedding garment. What is covering your sin this morning? Is it your good works? We already talked about that. I've got no good works. There's none good. None that does good. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. So I can't get in based on my own merit, on my own resourcefulness, my own righteousness that I make up myself. No, I, I don't have the rules. I don't make the rules. God makes the rules. Are you clothed in the righteousness of Christ this morning? I hope that you are. Do you believe that? Do you believe what Jesus said, and do you, and what He did on the cross for you? Do you believe that? Because that's the only way you can be admitted into the kingdom of heaven, is through faith, and it's by grace unmerited favor. That means you can't earn it. So stop trying to make your life better and coming to Christ saying, well, Lord, I stopped smoking. I stopped chewing tobacco and I stopped dating women who do. And I stopped doing all these things. Look at all the list. I got a bulletized list of things I've given up. You got to accept me. He's like, well, what have you done with my son? Well, I don't know who he is. Well, you can't, there's no, you can't come in. There's no way. It's through Christ. Didn't Jesus say that in John 14, verse 6? He says, I am the way. In the original language, it literally means, I am the only way, I am the only truth, and I am the only life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Through Christ. That's the only way. You're not going to get there through Buddha. You're not going to get there through Allah. And I don't care. That's politically incorrect. I don't care. Because the truth is the truth. We have to submit ourselves to the truth. And who is the truth? It's Jesus Christ. He said it himself. He is the true and faithful witness. He is the truth, the way, and the life. Amen? Amen. So, say what you want. Run to your, you know, whoever else, your gurus in the middle, you know, in the Far East. Listen, he died for them too. And he loves them. He loves people. He created them. Many are called and few are chosen. What does Matthew tell us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13? He says, enter by the narrow gate. It's a little bit counterintuitive here, isn't it? Enter by the narrow gate. That's where we need to enter in is the narrow gate. Notice, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because the narrow because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life and there are few who find it Christ is a stumbling block to the world they don't want anything to do with him his way is too narrow yes well you got to enter in that narrow way well it's open to everybody oh it's too narrow for me i need to, i need more space no come in through the narrow gate there's enough room for you to come in regardless of how much you weigh you can come in through the narrow way come in through the narrow way all who desire to, because broad is the way and broad is the gate that leads right to the pit of hell. And many are on that path. Many are on that path. I was on that path. So are you. Hopefully none of you are now. Hopefully all of you have made the decision. I'm going to follow this one who saved my soul. I'm going to follow this one who loves me unconditionally. And isn't it great to be loved like that? Because some of even our family and even our own fathers. I mean, how many of you had fathers who weren't very good at being fathers? You know, maybe they were just too busy doing their own thing and, and following their career and you never saw them. And they certainly never said, I love you. Rather, it was always a, 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 you know, a, hand, on, or a hand on the bottom or a you know, a stern word. It was never love, but do you know there's a Father in heaven who loves you? A Father in heaven who's perfect. And don't overlay your experience with your Father with that of God the Father. They're totally different. Because God the Father, His love is perfect and His ways are perfect. And folks, can I tell you, it is so incredible to know Him 
and to know how much he loves you. Even as a believer, it just melts me or ought to melt me. It ought to make my heart just go, oh God, whatever you want. That's an adequate response. Have you spurned the invitation of the king? Are you going to spurn it again this morning? For those of you who have not given your heart to Christ, like you've done so many other times in your life, are you going to continue spurning that invitation? Are you going to take your chances like these religious leaders? They rejected Christ, their heart became harder and harder, and there was a point where they crossed the line, the Rubicon, and only God knew that line. They didn't even know the line they were crossing when they crossed it, but their hearts got harder and harder and harder and harder. They were playing Russian roulette with their eternity. Are you chosen? Do you know if you are? And how would you know? Many years ago, I was in the congregation, and I've heard uh, Chuck Missler uh, many times in, in person. I've met him on a few occasions as well. But I remember hearing him one time, and, and he approached this idea that people struggle with, am I chosen or not, you know? <laughs> and he gave this little story, and I, I, I think it's very interesting. He says, as you approach the door of heaven, it says over the top, come in, all you children of the Father. And as you go through the door and you look back at the top of the door, on the other side, you look up at the top and it says chosen before the foundation of the world. I like that. Are you worried if you're a chosen or not? Well, come through the door and find out. Because once you get through the door, you're going to look up and go, oh, I was chosen before the foundation of the world. And yes, it is that simple. He gives you that. You have the opportunity. What's it going to be? You going to make that choice? I made that choice, and I'm glad I did because I was going nowhere fast. And who cares about where I was going? I mean, in my life, I mean, I was going to spend eternity separated from him. I knew that, and I tell you, when I finally gave my heart to Christ, I realized how close to the edge I was, and I was kind of like, whoa. Any second, a wind could have blown, and I'd be gone. And I had no idea that my life my eternal life was hanging by a thread. And I played games with it, playing Russian roulette. Don't play Russian roulette with your eternity. But what great assurance there is for the believer. You know, as I'm, uh, if we could have the worship team come on up, come on up um, as I finish up here. Um, I love this assurance of the believer. We know that John 3, 16, whoever believes in him, that, that whoever means the same as it does in English, as it does in the Greek, whoever. Whosoever believes in Christ should not perish but have everlasting life. And I like what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He says, my sheep, they hear my voice. Bah. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one, you might want to underline that in chapter 10 of John, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Once you are in Christ, you are secure. You're not perfect on this earth. But God sees you that way because in Christ. You give your heart to him. So the salvation of a soul is a mystery, but don't get hung up on it. I never struggled with that. Come to Christ. Give your heart and life to him. Trust him. Ask him into your heart. And if you're tired of trying to be good and get to heaven, stop trying. Come to Jesus, confessing your sins, and he will in no wise turn his back on you. He won't do it just like the prodigal son. Remember that? The son who was completely unworthy, spending his dad's fortune, and he comes back with his tail between his legs, and I'll just go back and work for my dad and shovel the pig slop. And he's walking back, and the father sees him afar off. And see, this is the attitude of God. He sees you broken and hurting and, and struggling, even in your sin. And he sees you and he runs after you. He runs. He runs after you.
I would encourage you to make that decision today that you might be invited to this wedding feast as a believer, yet future to us. I'm looking forward to that. Clothed in the righteousness of my Savior Jesus, not in my own. I, I, I can't own anything. I just believe what he told me. There is nothing more fabulous than that. There's nothing more secure. There's nothing more loving than that. And it totally blows everything out of the water. That kind of love, folks, is the love that changes eternity. It changes the world. It changed me. It changed you. And it will continue to change you. And Jesus will continue to conform you to his image until he returns. And then you'll be rewarded for your faithfulness. I like that. Do you? This morning, I, we're going to take communion together. And so if you're a believer in Christ, because why take communion if you don't believe this? Because these elements that we're going to be taking today, the, 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 the bread signifies his body, which was broken, broken for us. And we know that in that last supper, uh, the night before he was arrested, after the Passover meal, he took bread and the cup of wine. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it. And then after they took the bread and they ate it, he says, now take the, 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 the wine and he passed it around. Yes, pre-COVID, they did this. Passed it around. They drank all from the same chalice. Indiana Jones is still trying to find it. He said, this is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. As often as you will, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says, we, and we do this and by doing this, we remember the Lord's death until he comes back for us. That's why we do this, to remember. It's symbolic. This is not the literal body and blood of Christ. It's just symbolic. When we take it in, we are basically believing that message. So don't take it if you're not a believer this morning. But if you are, by all means, even if your life's a mess and you don't feel worthy, none of us are worthy. Come and partake at the table. And we'll take it together. So as the worship team is leading us in a song, just come on up and help yourself and bring it back to your chairs and we'll take it together, okay? Lord, we do thank you for what these elements, uh, what they mean, what they stand for, Lord. And as we take these elements, Lord, we don't take them uh, lightly, Lord. We understand, Lord, what you have done on the cross for each one of us. And, and Lord, it wasn't just your, your body being beaten and your body being broken and, and the skin and... and, and Everything that you went through, Lord, physically on the cross, we know that that was part of it, but the most important part was the stroke that the Father gave, the bruise that you gave, Father, to your Son. And that was the placing of all of the sin of mankind on, on, on you, Jesus. And Lord, what can we say to that this morning but thank you? We thank you for all that you've done and all that you're doing and all that you have yet to do, Lord. And so we take these elements in thanksgiving. We take them in praise and we take them with uh, understanding. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's partake. I know I've said this before, but um, over in the Near East, in Israel, having a meal together is one of the most intimate things you can do. One of the most intimate things. And what we did together this morning, and as we will do as we go out of this room into the fellowship hall and eat together, we're sharing a meal together. And there's an intimacy about eating together. And Jesus was very much into that. And I love the thought of that day 
coming. And we'll see him face to face. We will have our new bodies. We'll be in the millennium, the thousand year reign, on this earth for a thousand years, yet future to us. We will be here ruling and reigning with him in the kingdom of heaven. And one of the first things he's going to do, one of the first things he's going to set us all down, he's saying, let's eat together. Let's have a big bash. It's a wedding feast. And for, maybe you know what you're, I mean, I can't wait to see what he's going to have for us. I mean, there's going to be tables. And there's going to be no allergies. So for those of you who are allergic to shellfish and stuff like that, not a problem. If you have a problem with yeast and gluten, no problem. There's not going to be a gluten-free table. Everyone's going to be good. It's all going to be good. It's going to be the best you've ever had. Because it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Looking forward to that day, aren't you? Hey, let's stand together and let's uh, worship one last song. And then we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for that, Lord. And thank you for the hope that we have of heaven. And to know that you are there at the center of it all, Lord. And so, Lord, encourage our hearts, Lord. And I pray for anyone here this morning who has not made Jesus their Lord and Savior, Lord, that today would be the day. And and so we thank you, Lord, and um, and, uh, and praise you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.